But let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. It is a sweet time. And we thank you for the truths we just sang. Our sin, not in part, but the whole, have been nailed to the cross, and we bear them no more. And we can sing it as well with our souls. And that's why we gather tonight, to celebrate that reality. And we thank you for Jeremiah 14. Lord, we know that the text, the scriptures come to us in various shades and and cues. And um, this is one of those texts that's dark. And, And we need the darkness to appreciate the light of the gospel. And so, Father, as we look at this dark passage in a book that's largely dark, written by a man known as the Weeping Prophet. We pray that you would work in us a greater love, ironically, for the gospel in which this darkness points. We ask these things in the name, the matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I said, today marks the uh, first anniversary, the one-year anniversary, hopefully we won't be celebrating this anniversary too many years, uh, of the, the day we went online. In fact, I think we were nine weeks where we didn't gather, and it was, it was, it was sad. It really was. In many ways, you could say it was tragic uh, because it had such a, a negative effect on, on so many people and on the church in general. And, and, and so one year ago tonight, we suspended our Sunday evening services, and we've pretty much suspended them for a year. I think we, we gathered once back in November, and then there was another uh, rise in COVID cases, and we decided to, to suspend them again. And all of us remember March 11th. That was a Wednesday. Uh, we remember March 11th when uh, we recognized that the, the country was essentially going to shut down. Even, even sports teams were shutting down we, we didn't have uh, March Madness. Uh, Nate told me this day, he said, Dad, it's hard to believe it's been two years uh, since we've seen March Madness. But none of us knew the extent of what was going to happen. I don't think any of us were prepared for that. If you were, I certainly wasn't. Uh, but the next day, which was a Thursday, March the 12th, uh, an article was published about a man who predicted the pandemic, and looking back on that article, he was dead red right. His name was Dennis Carroll. So this came out the day after everything was shut down, and he had been an eyewitness to people around the world suffering from similar uh, viruses, and he had been a leading voice about the threat of the transmission of pathogens from animals uh, to human beings. 2009, after years of studying infectious diseases at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, he formed a U.S. aid program that he called PREDICT. And he did research in this U.S. aid program for a decade, up until 2019. And based on his, his research, he made this prediction. And this came out in an article March 12th of last year. This is a global event. It is going to hit every community in the world. And I can tell you from painful experience, it certainly hit Coffin County in Enterprise, Alabama. 
it virtually hit every community in the world. He was right. And that article was written just one day after the shutdown. Of course, Carol was not looking at this from a spiritual perspective. For him, it was all science. He was approaching it from research, from his scientific data. But today, we see, and we have been seeing this in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah had predicted something catastrophic as well, and it had come. But it differs from Carol in, in, in for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was more than a prediction. The, the prophets didn't just predict. See, I'm sure Carol, in his course of time, has predicted things that ended up not panning out. Jeremiah's was not a prediction. It was a prophecy. It was breathed out by God himself. To be a prophet, get this, you, you have to bat more than 500. You have to bat more than 750. That'll make you a million dollars in the majors, but it'll get you stoned under the old covenant. To be a prophet, you had to bat 1,000. And so Jeremiah said, it's coming. And stage one has arrived in the form of drought, all right? So that's one difference between Jeremiah and, and Carol and others of Carol's sort. Secondly, the reasons for what was coming was not scientific. They were spiritual. They were spiritual. Jer Judah and, and Israel, for that matter, was living in unrepentant idolatry. Now, the question I have to ask all the time as a preacher, not to make the text relevant. There's a world of difference between making a text relevant and showing its relevance. Uh, preachers that m try to make the text relevant are betraying uh, this unbelief that they don't believe at face value that the Bible is relevant. So they, they manipulate it in order to apparently make it relevant. Well, that's not what we believe. The text is relevant, but I have to ask myself every time I study the text, why is it relevant, not if it's relevant? And, and so the question I'm asking here as we make our way through Jeremiah, why is this text relevant to us? Because it is. And we know this in part from Paul's own attestation of the Old Testament. He says all Scripture is God breathed, breathed out by God, and therefore it's profitable. So even though we're not under the old covenant, as the people of Judah were, the people of Israel were, we understand that even under the new covenant that was ratified by our Lord Jesus Christ, all idolatry will be judged. And it will be judged in a way that makes drought and the sword and pestilence. Those three words we're going to see in this chapter, and we'll see it 15 times in the book of Jeremiah for that matter, seem like junior varsity. All right? And that's important for us. So the judgments we see in time and space in the book of Jeremiah are painful judgments but they pale in comparison to the judgment on the last day for unrepentant idolaters. 
So this is kind of a warning for people who read their Old Testament today, who sit on this side of the New Covenant. These, these droughts and the sword and the pestilence and all these judgments in time and space are just foreshadowings. They are pointing us to, to something much more severe and eternally severe at that. How do we know that? The cross. We know it because of the warning of judgment that's coming, but we also know it because of the cross. Because on the cross, we see the most severe judgment that will ever happen. The Son of God, the God-man, taking the wrath of God for every person who would trust in him, for every sin they would ever commit. The cross tells us above all things the kind of judgment awaits for those who are not repentant. And so this text, as we get into it, it is intended to wake us up from our idolatrous slumbers. So we, the old man, you know, we talk about the old man in, in the book of Ephesians. The old self is fundamentally idolatrous. And that, and that is our path of least resistance. And so this chapter, this book is intended to wake us up from our idolatrous slumbers and to remind us that any judgment that we see in time and space in the Old Testament pales in comparison to the greater judgment to come. And that brings us to verse 1. The setting for this chapter, which is drought. Look at me in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Now, again, it's hard to assess when this was written. Scholars have a fit trying to figure that out. And in my, in my take on it is if the Lord wanted us to know when it was written, if it was important, we'd know. But it appears that the drought is kind of stage one for the greater judgment to come, which is exile. And we saw at the end of chapter 13, the warning of exile. In fact, starting in verse 15 of Jeremiah 13, we see exile threatened. And it's almost like the Lord is being gracious with the drought. It's like he's saying, okay, if you, just in case you don't believe exile's coming, I'll bring a drought. And the drought is kind of a tremor to the earthquake that is going to come. Now, having said that, one of the covenant curses that God threatened to send on the disobedient nation was drought. If you look all the way back in Leviticus, hear these words from Leviticus 26, verses 18 and 19. If you will not listen to me. Now, the context is Israel's about to go into the land, right? They have been set free, so... They have been redeemed out of Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and they're about to make their way into the land, and God warns, if you will not listen to me, I will make the pride of your power and will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. He says, I will bring a drought. Now, why a drought? Well, what we learned, remember when we were in Exodus and those plagues came down on 
those on, on, on Egypt. What we saw there was that God's judgments are not arbitrary. God was judging the idols in Egypt. So, for instance, the, the ninth plague was darkness. And the reason that was a plague was because they worshiped the sun, S-U-N. And then the 10th plague was death on the firstborn son because they worshiped the son of the king, the son of Pharaoh. So these were judgments on their idols. And for Israel, the land was an idol. For Israel, the land flowing with milk and honey, the fruitfulness of the land was an idol. And so drought would be a a judgment that would make sense in light of their idolatry. But drought is a scary word. I don't know if any of you remember uh, the last drought. Uh, In in its its truest form, it leads to famine and the devastation of, of livestock and crops. I think the worst drought in U.S. history occurred during the 30s and the 50s. I had to look this up. Uh, a period known as the Dust Bowl years, um, in which droughts led to massive economic damage. And there were relief and health agencies that became overburdened, and, and many community banks had to close. Well, this drought had hit Judah at this point, and it was a tremor uh, of an even worse catastrophe that was to come. That was the destruction of the land and the exile of the people. Can you imagine being uprooted and taken to a foreign land? Uh, We we were watching Roots as a family a few weeks ago, and and I think that that is the closest parallel we can even vision. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his troops coming in and stealing families, stealing people, and taking them back to Babylon. But this drought was a reversal of creation. It's a reversal of creation. God created the earth to be fruitful. He created it to be a garden temple. And now there's a drought. Now, Leviticus, I mean, not Leviticus, but Lamentations was written by Jeremiah as well. And in Lamentations 4, let me just share a few words from Lamentations 4 as Jeremiah kind of pictures, gives us um, word pictures of the devastation of this drought. Limitations 4, listen to this, verse 4, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. This is the drought. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. Verse 8, now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. It it was a horrific time. I, I think, I guess, the last year has helped prepare us a bit 
for the kind of catastrophic time in Judah's history at this point. As we have seen uh, what this COVID virus has done uh, for thousands of people, and, and many here have been impacted by that, by the loss of loved ones. It was a horrible time. In fact, Jeremiah actually believed people, and he, whether he means this literally or metaphorically, were better off dead. Um, it, it was so horrifying that it afflicted every level of society. Notice in verse 2, Judah mourns, and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Now, as we get into verses 3 and 6, I want to, 3 to 6, I want you four times the emphasis on absence. The emphasis on absence. There's no water, there's no rain, there's no grass, there's no vegetation. Her nobles, verse 3, send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns, they find no water. They return with their vessels empty. So no water. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads because of the ground that is dismayed since there's no rain on the land. No water, no rain. The waters, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Why are they ashamed? I would assume that these experts in agrarian enterprises weren't very successful at their craft at this moment. They have nothing to offer the people. They have nothing to offer their families. Even the dough. Um, and what we're going to see here is not just the farmers. Um, it, it, it's all living things. Even the dough in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass and so you have nobles who send their servants for water and there's no water in the cistern. So nobles are impacted, which reminds us that this drought didn't care about your tax bracket. And then let me just speak here. Um, I think this is important for us to understand, and I've brought this up before, but I think I want us to remember this. And that is, any just judgment is rooted in what we know as the law of retribution. And what is the law of retribution? Well, there's three principles to the law of retribution. First of all, only the guilty suffer in the law of retribution. Guilty image bearers, that is. There's collateral damage with we see the animals here because the creation is bound up in the fidelity and the stewardship of the image bearers because all things were placed underneath our feet. Uh, we, were, we were given dominion over the created order and because Adam sinned and because Israel sinned, even the creation is devastated. But only the guilty are punished based on the law of retribution. Secondly, uh, proportionality. You will only be punished proportionate to your crime. There are no victims in a just judgment. 
That's why hell is not unjust. There are no, uh, there are no victims in hell. Um, you will only be punished proportionate to your, your sin. And then the third principle of uh, the law of retribution is equity. Judgment does not look at particular genders, particular ethnicities, or particular tax brackets. In our culture, if you've got a lot of money, you can, you can hire an expensive lawyer and you can get off some crimes. We've seen that happen many times, haven't we, with celebrities? Well, the principle of equity, which grounds the law of retribution, says only the, the guilty will be punished and, and that judgment is not a respecter of persons. We're seeing that here. The nobles, but even here, the farmers and even the living things are being affected. Notice in verse 6, the wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there's no vegetation. And perhaps the Lord, you know, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And so perhaps the people of God, Judah, could look at these animals and see them starving. And God's glory was revealed in that. God's glory in judgment. God's glory is revealed not just in salvation, it's revealed in judgment as well. And perhaps those starving animals were intended to, to preach a sermon to these idolaters. It was a horrible time. Though our iniquities, and, it, and at this point, um, in their devastated state, they cry out to God. It took this, all right? And we see this in verse 7. Though our iniquities, now scholars differ. Is this Jeremiah praying? Or is this Judah praying? Or is this Jeremiah who represents the people as their prophet? It's hard to say, um, but we see the prayer. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many, we have sinned against you. This is like some of the, the Psalms of lament, like Psalm 10. In other words, the Lord should act for the sake of his name. Now, physical desperation often produces spiritual desperation, doesn't it? I wish we had the maturity to recognize that we're as desperate on vacation with money in the bank and having been given a clean bill of health from our physician than a stage four cancer patient or a COVID patient who, who is on a respirator. I wish we had that maturity, but we don't. And so the Lord will permit, God will allow physical circumstances to dry up. And oftentimes this will produce a spiritual desperation because now the masking agents have been removed. But one of my concerns 
over this last year, the pandemic, is, have you noticed this? There has not been a mass turning to God. There has been a worldwide pandemic, and there has not been a mass turning to God that I'm aware of. Perhaps in the Southern Hemisphere, where they say the, the Christian, Christian faith is exploding there, praise God. But we haven't even seen it in the church. We haven't seen great revivals in the church over the last year. There's been more interest, unless anyone think I'm pointing fingers at them, I'll point it back at me too. There's been more interest in political hope than hope in God. And that's no different than the idolatry we see here with Israel. Having said all that, Many who cry out to God, and these people, I believe, are guilty of that, only want relief or resources from him. They don't want him. All right? And that seems to be the case here. It appears that they believe that they can just call out to God whenever and wherever they want in an emergency without regard for repentance. Now, it appears that they're repentant. In verse 7, our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you, but God knows the heart. Man can fool us, but you cannot fool God. And he has seen this before. He has heard this song before. For instance, all the way back in chapter 7, listen to this. Will, verse 9 of Jeremiah, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. See, fundamentally, and God knew this, they weren't so concerned about their backsliding and their sin as they were about how they felt about what they perceived to be God's inadequate response to them. And they thought they could fool God by showing up on the Sabbath, by showing up on the holy days, and then go and do whatever they wanted the rest of the time. They wanted justification without God. That's what they wanted but they were not deceiving God. There is a lack of genuineness here, and for one, it doesn't appear they know him very well. Look in verse 8. Oh, you hope of Israel. They're using the biblical language. It's Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? And so here they're accusing God, and maybe even Jeremiah's doing that. It's just hard to say. I, I've, I've, I've consulted several sources on this, and, and sometimes it's hard to evaluate and discern whether this is Jeremiah speaking. But the thing is, Jeremiah knows their sin. And, and these people are pleading to God, but it's very clear they don't have repentance. And, and so here they, they accuse God of being like a traveler. Uh, who'll only stay for a night. Moreover, they, they accuse him of being a, a weak and impotent warrior. Notice in verse 9, 
Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Now, the irony here is remarkable. They beg, do not leave us. But how many times had Jeremiah warned them that they had been forsaking the Lord? And God is not impressed. He's not just ignoring them. He's punishing them. This is judgment. Verse 10. And by the way, that's, this, is, this is one of those reasons we, we can't take verses out of context. Because if you look at verses 7 and 8 and 9, it appears that they're repentant. And they're not. And so a text taking out of context, uh, you can develop your own theology. But in the context, it is clear they're not repentant. Because notice in verse 10, thus says the Lord concerning this people, they have loved to wander thus, they have not restrained their feet, therefore the Lord does not accept them. In other words, you can, you can outwardly do and say the right things, and the Lord will say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's horrifying, it's It's fearful. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Now, a time would come when this judgment would be reversed. But for now, the Lord will be as active in his punishment as they are in their rebellion. And, and, and the Lord's cold response, I mean, it really is. It's a, it's, a, it's a cold response. It's a holy response, but it appears to be cold is in line with what he forbids next. It's so bad that for the third time, he tells Jeremiah not to even pray for them. We saw it the first time in Jeremiah 7, verse 16, if you're taking notes. We saw it the second time in chapter 11, verse 14. And here, verse 11 of chapter 14, the Lord said to me, do not pray. For the welfare of this people. We're not bearers of new revelation. We've got 66 books. The canon's closed. One of the attributes that the reformers emphasized was the finality of the 66 book canon. And so I I don't believe the Lord's ever going to tell me, don't pray for people. Uh, But Jeremiah was a prophet. He was a writing prophet. He was inspired of God. and, And so he was a bearer of new revelation. But having said that, it reminds us there can come a point where God just gives a people over. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. Do not pray for the welfare of this people. Notice, again, verses 7 to 9, they look repentant. And and, and that kind of outward behavior can fool people. We've been fooled here. We have baptized people that now the FBI can't find. And so people can fool people, but you can't fool God. Notice in verse 12, though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. Now, 
if you compare them to the Babylonians <laughs> and the Assyrians, it appears they're not that bad a people, right? If we're comparing them that way. But when you compare them to the law of God and the character of God, they're worthy of judgment. I will consume them, and here it is, by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Again, horrifying language, by pestilence. So his refusal to hear the prayers is not due to indifference. He knew their hearts were stone. And they had assumed that with their religious rituals, they could appease him. How many people are like that? I'll just go to Mass. Let's get closer to home. I'll just go to Sunday school class. I'll go to church. I'll tithe. And they thought they could appease him by these religious rituals. But instead of forgiving them, the Lord announced he was going to destroy them with a triple threat. Notice the triple threat here. Sword, famine, and pestilence. These instruments of judgment are referenced 15 times in Jeremiah. It's not the only place, though. Let me give you a few other texts. There's many. For lack of time, Leviticus 26, 23 to 26. Ezekiel 5.12. And how about Revelation 6.8? Listen to this. Revelation 6.8. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and pestilence. Triple threat of judgment. Of course, as we... We have seen throughout the book of Jeremiah, one of the real issues in Judah was that they had settled for false prophets. By the way, before I get into that, one of the reasons I still am very hopeful, the main reason I'm hopeful here in the West is Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so no matter what we see on the news is not the true news. And what's happening in the local church, the real church, the true church, where the gospel's preached faithfully, that's the news. That's what God's doing. You're not going to read it. You're not going to see that on CNN, and you're not going to see it on Fox. You're not going to see it on Newsmax, all right? That's where the new, that's what God's doing. And I'm very hopeful, but I'm also hopeful because we haven't been given over completely to false prophets yet in the United States. I think there's a rise there's more and more people who are given over to it, but I still see uh, there has been a, a reformation in our seminaries, though our seminaries aren't perfect. Uh, and as a result, we're seeing a rise of, of preachers coming out who believe the Bible, who believe that it's sufficient, authoritative, that there's a, the power of God unto salvation is found in the gospel. But at this point, it appears based on the fact that no one's listening to Jeremiah, but they sure love their false prophets. That's one of the evidences of judgment on a people when you see the rise and the embrace of false prophets. Notice in verse 13, he says, Then I said, 
Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And so Jeremiah feels like he needs to remind the Lord that these false prophets were kind of undoing Jeremiah's message. They were contradicting his message. Instead of the sword, instead of famine, instead of pestilence, they were announcing lasting peace. The real problem, as Jeremiah sees it, is that God is threatening punishment and these prophets, which outnumber Jeremiah, the false prophets clearly outnumber the, the true prophets. I mean, during this time, you also have Ezekiel, and you have Isaiah, you have Micah, uh, you have Amos and Hosea. So you have faithful prophets during that broad period, but the, the false prophets outnumbered them. And, and here's what God does. He answers Jeremiah uh, by explaining that the messages of these false prophets were lies because he had not appointed them. He had not called them. Notice in verse 14, And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision worthless divination divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Their message was deceit of their own minds. And God is going to judge them for their lies by destroying both the false prophets, get this, and the ones that listen to the false prophets. It's not just the false prophets he's going to come after. He's going to come after those who embrace the message. That's horrifying. When you consider the false prophets in our culture, many of them have some of the largest attendances in the world. Notice in verse 15, Therefore thus says the Lord, concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say sword and famine, shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine, these prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy, the people who are listening, the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem. Victims of famine and sword with none to bury them. Them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters. For I will pour out their evil upon them. Horrifying. Just for review, we've already seen this. Let me just give you a few texts. Chapter 5, verse 12 of Jeremiah. God said, they have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, he will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. How do we hear that today? 
God is not a wrathful God. He's a God of love. There's no wrath with God. There's no hell. There's no eternal judgment. God is love. That's nothing new. Chapter 6, verse 13, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They're in it for the money. It's self-serving interest. Verse 14 of Jeremiah 6, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace. They were, to use an illustration, giving cancer patients, instead of radiation, they were just giving them a lot of painkillers that would satisfy them for the moment, but would actually end up costing them their lives. And in light of that, judgment. It's horrifying. And, and again, this reminds us how important it is to pray for our pastors. One of the things we do on Saturday nights, and we listen, we're not the standard of this. We, we, we should be praying more than we do, is we pray for pastors. We, we have a list of um, how many names do you think? How many? Uh, 50, yeah, maybe 50 pastors that we pray for on Saturday nights. And, and, they, and my kids, they know these pastors now so well because we've been praying for them for years. We add to the list almost monthly that they will rebuke me afterwards if I forget one of their names. And, and, and it's interesting that oftentimes they'll meet these pastors later and go, oh, we pray for you on Saturday night. And I've tried to teach my students. So if I have a class on Monday or Tuesday, I tell our students to pray for the previous service. Pray that the word of God that was preached and sung and read would, would bear fruit to pray for the preachers. And then later in the week, Thursday and Friday, we pray for the upcoming service. We, we need to pray for our preachers because judgment is coming to false prophets. And there's more and more heat coming here for those who are faithful to the word of God. It's coming. That Equality Act is just a, it is just a tremor of what is to come unless God graciously, and he can, bring an awakening here to the United States. Um, false teachers are going to be judged, and so will those who hear them. And what did Jeremiah do here as we get towards the end as a witness to such horrific times? Well, he prayed, but he also wept, and he wrestled with the Lord. Notice in verse 17, you shall say to them this word, let my eyes run down with tears night and day and let them not cease for the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound with a very grievous blow. And so Jeremiah's sorrow is, is bursting out at the thought of even more judgment to come. Again, the, the um, drought is just stage one. It's just kind of preparing you. It's like the coming attraction. Verse 18, if I go out into the field, behold, they, those pierced by the sword. And if I enter the city, behold, the diseases of famine. For, be, for both prophet and priest ply their trade through the land and have no knowledge. The prophets and the priests are ignorant. 
when it comes to the things of God. And so he is seeing, Jeremiah is seeing this, this suffering all around him, and, and he wants the Lord to do something. And, and don't we resonate with, with Jeremiah here? I mean, I resonate with Jeremiah. We're seeing just this wickedness, palatable wickedness, even in our land. And we just want God to do something. But recognize, this wickedness has been brought on by us. As I have said, the problem in our culture, I really believe, starts with the church. Nature abhors a vacuum. And I lay the blame at me as much as any Christian. But if we're not serving as light and salt in the culture, gospel replacements will abound. And that's what we're seeing. And that's the judgment that's coming. Jeremiah says, have you utterly rejected Judah? It's like a, it's, he's, he's frustrated. He's a human. Jeremiah is not some... Uh, supernatural being. He, he's a human like you and I, and, he, and he's struggling. Does your soul loathe Zion? He's, he's wrestling with the Lord here. Why have you struck us down so that there's no healing for us? Because Jeremiah wrestles with this tension that, yes, <laughs> Judah deserves it, but, but then there's the promises. There's the promises. What happened to the promises? I mean, that's something Habakkuk Struggles with as well. You're judging us with a nation that's even more godless than us. That's what Jeremiah is struggling with. We looked for peace, but no good came for a time of healing, but behold, terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Full confession here now means... Confession comprehensively. Uh, you see three different words for sin that are used, wickedness. The problem is I think Jeremiah is doing this, but not the rest of the, the people. And so in verse 21, Jeremiah prays for mercy for the sake of God's glory. Do not spurn us for your namesake. Now why would he say namesake? Because again, he's grounding it in the promises God made to Israel. And so his, he, he, Jeremiah is reminding the Lord, your name's on the line. Do not spurn us for your namesake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. That's what the word hesed means. And we, we see it uh, translated as steadfast love in the ESV. His, his, his hesed, his steadfast love endures forever. What that means is God has promised to be true to himself as, as righteous and just, but also true to his promises to save people to save sinners. And, and, and I think that's what he's referring to here when, when, he's, when he's considering his name. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. See? Do not break your covenant with us. You made a covenant with us. And at this point, that covenant is bound up in David, right? The Davidic covenant. You made a covenant. You made a promise. I know we're wicked. I know we're jacked up. And I know the repentance is not is anything but perfect. And then in verse 22, he closes, Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? No, only you can. Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you. 
for you do all these things. Jeremiah, I think, is praying for the people, and yet he doesn't have the people's hearts praying with him. That's the dilemma Jeremiah's in. And, and that's how this chapter ends. Of course, Jeremiah's hope in the Lord fundamentally, and we'll see this time and time again in his book, is not just that he would bring rain, because Jeremiah's a man of God. Uh, he, he doesn't pray like pagans pray. Pagans ignore God until their mother gets sick, or their child gets sick, or they lose their job. And then they come to God, but they don't come to him as the end. They come to him as the means to an end. That's not Jeremiah. The problem is it was the nation as a whole. He knew that the drought, because he had preached this, was the judgment on their idolatry. But a time would come, and we can't leave it here because we have to go in the good news, right? A time would come when this judgment would be reversed within the promise of a new covenant. And so I want to close here with words that you're familiar with, but we can't leave here with just this open-ended question. We know the answer, but we need to be reminded of the answer because it's easy to go home tonight and watch the news and forget the answer. And then we get anxious and we get really fearful and we despair of any hope. Jeremiah wrestles with God, and God answers him in time. And here's what he said. Behold, Jeremiah 31, 31, the days are coming. The days are coming, declares the Lord. You've prayed for my namesake. You've prayed that my glory would be revealed in salvation. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the covenant made with Moses, the Sinai covenant. My covenant that they broke, by the way, he says, though I was their husband. In other words, they were unfaithful to their marriage vows. They committed adultery on me. And they've continued to commit adultery on me ever since. I mean, no sooner have I made covenant with them than Aaron is is making a a false god with Egypt's gold. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. So what he's been doing all this time, the Lord is establishing. You you need a new covenant because what what, what, what you need... Only I can, can, can provide. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's coming a day when the rebellion's going to end, he's saying. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Of course, we know that... For God to remember their sin no more requires a plan that will allow him to stay holy. Imagine imagine committing murder and, and standing before a judge 
and the judge says, you know what, I've got a, I've got a tea time. Don't worry about it. I exonerate you. Well, you'd be happy, and you'd walk out of that court, but that judge just demonstrated he is wicked. And so God, in order to remain just and righteous and still save people like we see in this text, requires a plan where he can be just and a justifier. That's the heart of Hesed. That's the heart of steadfast love. He would send his son, and his son would do what Adam never did. He would obey God. His son would do what Israel as a nation would never do as the corporate son. He would obey God. He would do what David didn't do perfectly. He would obey God. He would keep the terms of the law so that God could remain just. And then he would go, and we know this, but we need to be reminded, he would go to the cross, and the drought and the pestilence and the sword, which is so heinous, but points to a greater judgment, a much more heinous judgment, was poured out on this representative of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. He so embodies who Israel is that Isaiah calls him Israel in the servant songs, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49. And we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all so that he could forgive us of our sins. And so this text reminds us that idolatry is heinous. It's fundamentally heinous and it's worthy of horrific judgment. And yet, as the book continues, we're reminded God is going to reverse that judgment through the branch of David, the Lord Jesus himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for the darkness. Because as all of us know, who have been in situations where there was no electricity, there was no light, when that light comes on, we celebrate. And there are great passages that light us up in Jeremiah to come. And so this passage here, makes us appreciate that light, the light that we know is a person, the Son of God, the faithful one, unlike us, who came as our substitute. And we just pray, Lord, that as we make our way through Jeremiah, that the idolatry we see in the text would sober us to our own functional idolatries. And it would remind us of how just you are and how our sin deserves judgment and how glorious the gospel is, that we have a Savior who took the judgment for us. And we thank you for that Savior tonight as we close. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed this evening.